0: Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a sceptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford and John Glazer is sitting in for Trevor Thrall today. Hey John. Hi. Oil is still the engine of the global economy. For importing countries, ensuring oil supplies, usually talked about as energy security, that's a vital part of protecting economic prosperity. For oil producers, a drop in global demand or in oil prices can be the difference between a prosperous year and domestic unrest. But there's also been substantial change in global energy markets in the last few decades. In 1991, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait was enough of a threat to global oil supplies that it drew together an international coalition that included the US and the USSR. Today, with changes in technology and the rise of new producers like the United States, it's hard even for OPEC to find consensus among its members or to actively shape oil prices. So we're joined today by Ellen Wald, an academic and consultant who focuses on the politics of energy. She writes weekly energy columns at Investing.com and Forbes, and quite literally wrote the book on Saudi Aramco and its relationship to the Saudi state. So she joined us at Cato on March 4th as part of our event on energy security, the Iran crisis in the Middle East, and was kind enough to also record this podcast with us at that time. Ellen, welcome to Power Problems. Thanks for having me. So, obviously, as as listeners of the podcast will know, this is an issue I care a lot about. Um, But perhaps for our listeners, we could start with your general thoughts on where global oil markets are today. Um, So, I mean, the U.S. is now the biggest global producer of oil and gas. Does the classic idea of energy
1: security still hold for the U.S., or are we living in some entirely different world? I think that... Energy security and the way that the United States looks at energy security has changed over the years. And a lot of us, I think, are very much stuck in this mentality that developed uh, in the 1970s, which was a mentality of oil scarcity, that the United States is the largest consumer of oil, and we're still the largest consumer of oil in the world, but that um we we don't have any oil or we don't have enough that we produce to satisfy our growing demand. And that's something that happened uh, to the United States in uh, 1972. It was basically when the scales were tipped and we started needing to import more oil to accommodate our growing demand. And ever since then, there's been a sense of uh, this idea that American Energy security is hostage to these big oil producers, most of whom were in the Middle East at the time. Although not solely in the Middle East, Venezuela, for example, was also uh, was a very big oil producer. But that paradigm, I think, has again started to change. Uh, and it started to change really in um, starting in, in the mid-2000s. Uh, really, the big switch was, I would say, in, in 2014, which was when U.S. production started to climb enough that it was actually affecting global oil prices. And at in, in the end of 2014 is really um, when everything kind of came to a head And uh, OPEC uh, basically led or it was almost really a unilateral decision by Ali al-Naimi, who is the uh, Saudi oil minister, decided that uh, he was basically going to go all out and they were not going to curb production anymore. Saudi Arabia was going to produce as much as they could. And all other OPEC producers also went all out. And... For some time, oil prices had started to to be to decline heading into that meeting, uh, but they were still pretty high. I mean, we're still talking like eighty dollars a barrel, so not a, not an insignificant amount of money. You know, before then, oil prices had reached a high in in you know two thousand and twelve. We're talking like one hundred and twenty seven dollars a barrel. I mean, really quite a, a lot of money, and they were starting to decline due to rising production, particularly in the United States. But once the OPEC country started to go all out in 2014, end of 2014, 2015, really, uh, that's when we started seeing prices drop and dropped all the way down to $27 a barrel. That's a massive, massive change in not that amount of time. And so it's not surprising that uh, from a policy standpoint, our our foreign policy and other policies that have long been associated with energy haven't totally caught up to this. Uh, But then there's the flip side because, you know, American production has been continuing uh, to grow. Right now, we're producing about 12 million barrels of oil per day, which makes us the largest oil producer in the entire world. Now, that number is a very high number, um, but there's a little bit I would say that's important to unpack about that number because not all oil is equal to—a not barrel of oil is not necessarily equal to all other barrels of oil. And um, in the United States, we produce uh, primarily a type of very light oil. Um, That's the type of oil that's produced from fracking. And that type of oil is very valuable, but the way that our refineries in the United States are set up— we need a mix of heavy oil and light oil in order to optimize our refinery usage. So we cannot solely exist off of just our American produced oil. So it's it. while that number, that 12 million barrels of oil per day is, is an important number, it doesn't quite tell the whole picture of American energy and, and what we need to consume and what we need to import and also how we can export. Uh, but we are existing in, in a different uh, paradigm than we were in th- that uh, we saw starting in the 70s, 80s, 90s. It's a, definitely a different paradigm. But one of the things I would say is that a lot of this is cyclical and it could, it could change. And so we should not assume that the way that our production is going today is necessarily going to continue uh, to to function in the same way for for years and years to come. Just like, you know, if you ask somebody in the 1940s, uh, will America have to import oil? They would have said, no way, of course not. I mean, America was producing the oil that fueled the Allied, uh, you know, invasion of, of Europe. We were producing oil that helped us win World War II. No one would have thought that, uh, we would ever become dependent on foreign oil imports. So just as as no one foresaw what happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s back then, so too today we shouldn't assume that our current uh, energy picture is going to continue for, say, the next 50 years.
0: I think that's a really good point. Um, and, you know, in addition to sort of the mix of fuels that we're producing, um, I, I think the point about consumption versus production is really important. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I was actually just looking at this data last week. And if you look at sort of the US, if you look at the ratio of production to consumption, you go back to the 50s, the 60s, and the US, it's basically parity, right? We're producing about as much as we're consuming. Um, and then it sort of goes off a cliff. And in the 70s, we're not producing nearly enough. And we're, we're you know, we're, we're consuming a bunch of foreign oil. And then it's been slowly creeping back up. But even what we produce today is not actually enough to meet our consumption needs. Um, yeah, we're
1: the largest oil consumer in the world. So we consume about uh, 20 million barrels of oil a day. Um, and I, I believe the next highest is China, which consumes about 14 Million barrels of oil per day, possibly less right now. But this is this is before uh, any of the the recent uh, um, illnesses and and uh, economic uh, effects of that. So China, though, um, really is it, it's kind of interesting because China is kind of in the position that the United States used to be in. So they are consuming about 14 million barrels of oil per day. I think they produce about four, which is basically nothing and they have been importing between 10 and 11 million barrels of oil per day so they they really are dependent on foreign imports uh, the united states gets oil from a variety of places in fact i can uh, tell you the most recent uh, stats say that uh, our biggest uh, the biggest source of so-called foreign oil in the united states is canada and we have always been importing uh, the most from canada our next um Next largest uh, right now is Mexico. So one of the things that I think is important when we look at American energy security is that we really need to look at it from a hemispheric perspective, from the perspective of North America, because not only uh, are Canada and Mexico our biggest sources right now of foreign oil, but we're also interconnected with them in terms of our electricity generation, uh, like electricity lines, uh, particularly with Canada, but also uh, pipelines and natural gas. And natural gas is becoming an increasingly important source of energy in the United States. And we produce a massive amount of natural gas. A lot of that is produced uh, both as a byproduct of fracking for oil, but also you can frack for natural gas. And so We have a there's there's a great deal of interconnectedness. uh, But when we look at energy security, we tend to look at it just from a perspective of our nation, the United States. Perhaps it might be better to look at it from the perspective of North America because we are so intertwined and it may behoove our, our policymakers to think of it more in terms of a hemispheric proposition.
0: Yeah, those and those figures, I think, would look very different in terms of sort of quote-unquote foreign oil if we rolled sort of NAFTA partners into, into that figure. Um, you mentioned Venezuela a while back, and I kind of wanted to come back to that because I think it's a really interesting proposition. Everybody's always sort of freaking out about Middle Eastern oil and supply shortages. And probably by far the biggest disruption in, in, that we have seen in uh, in the Americas in recent years, has been the decline in production in Venezuela. We used to get what something like twelve or
1: thirteen percent of our oil from Venezuela. And now it's down to practically nothing, yeah. right now it's it's technically zero because um Venezuelan oil is embargoed. So the United States is not importing any Venezuelan oil now. Venezuela is also barely producing any oil. um that that is a very significant point. And it's one of the things that I think we're we're still in a in an oil glut situation today. And yet, we're in an oil glut situation and yet there's no, oil, there's almost no oil on the market from Iran. There's almost no oil on the market from Venezuela and there's no oil on the market right now from Libya. Those are three significant oil producers whose oil is essentially blocked from the market. There's a, I would say there's a little over a million barrels of oil from Iran getting on the market. There's definitely some getting on the market from Venezuela through Russia. But um, for the most part, those three sources of oil are are essentially taken taken out and the united states used to get a lot of heavy oil from venezuela so venezuela technically has the largest oil reserves in the world but most of this um these reserves are um in something called oil sands which they also have in Canada. Um, it's not all of Canada's oil, but um, which is a very intensive process. It's basically a very kind of sludgy oil and you have to separate it a lot. And they use these things called upgraders to basically make it so you can actually move the substance through pipelines uh, in order to get to be exported. So it's it's quite an involved and very intensive process, which makes it very expensive to produce Venezuelan oil. And that's one of the reasons why Venezuela was... Um, one of the first countries to see declines because of the drop in oil prices. So a lot of people believed that when Ali Al-Naimi decided they they would go all out. You know, in the end of 2014, 2015, that he was basically going to war against the shale producers, and um, you know, to try to put them out of business because they were producing much higher cost oil than Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia produces oil for the lowest cost of anyone in the world. Uh, It's a little costs them a little over two dollars a barrel to produce, which is lower than anybody else. So when Saudi Arabia sells a barrel of oil on the market, it makes more money than any other country selling a barrel of oil. And Venezuela was one of the highest cost producers on the market. Um, They really needed, it was costing them, I think, maybe possibly uh, almost $80. A bear, something like that. It was very high cost. And part of that is also because, um, you know, their national oil company is very expensive, wastes a lot of money, but also just because of the actual process involved in getting this, this oil. And so they were really the first to go, essentially. If 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 you look at it like a war, they were the first to go. Um, and largely because of the way their country functions and because of their, their socialist and, and government-run situation, um, the entire economy fell apart. But if you're looking just at the oil, they became unable to run these upgraders to actually produce this oil. And so their output dropped so much that a country that was once a major part of OPEC, I mean, a leader in the oil world, was reduced essentially to nothing. And now that we have this, um, uh, you know, we have sanctions on Venezuelan oil, none of it's getting to the United States. And it's very interesting because there was a lot of, there were a lot of connections between the U.S. and and Venezuela. I would say um, the countries, you know, that, that have the deepest connections between the American energy industry, I mean, other than Canada and Mexico, we're talking about Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. And so those connections have really been quashed and and separated and venezuela is suffering from it um where is the u.s now getting its heavy oil from though because it's not like we're just not importing it we're getting a lot of it from iraq believe it or not and iraq is actually the second largest uh, oil producer now within opec
0: yeah, and it's—I mean—it's kind of fascinating because it does highlight that there are these disagreements inside OPEC. So I think, sort of, for the the, the average observer who doesn't really pay any attention to this, you know, you see OPEC as this block. Um, but if you, you know, if we step back and go back to 2014 and this this issue that you're talking about, where the Saudis effectively decide that they're going to push back um, against um, against to some extent American fracking, they're going to try and preserve market share. They're going to push back against other providers, it's also against these other members of OPEC, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, I think we have a perception in the United States. I mean, I guess if you ask people, like, what are some of the most despised international institutions in the world, OPEC would probably be up there. I mean, this is the organization of, of petroleum exporting countries that was responsible in many ways for um, the oil shocks in the ni- 1970s, um, the oil embargo. Technically, the oil embargo was really just done by the Arab Members of OPEC, they kind of have their own little group. So technically, the oil embargo was was their fault. But the group, you know, as as a group, did raise oil prices by by cutting production, um, and so which was essentially brought the U.S. into a recession and also contributed to uh, Jimmy Carter's not winning another term. So you know, it's not like this group is is somehow beloved. I mean, every, everybody loves to hate. OPEC. So so it's always a, a good group to hate, but it's actually a very interesting group because um, there's actually a lot of debate over whether OPEC is actually a cartel or not. Um, does it fit the definition? Does it act like a cartel? Is it effective at being a cartel? There, there are all sorts of debates and some people say, well, it's not effective at being a cartel, so therefore it should not be considered a cartel. I've heard someone describe it as a political club. You know,
0: I admit to myself being a bit of a skeptic on that, the uh, skeptic of the idea that it's OPEC that matters as a cartel as opposed to just the Saudis. And I, I think you can kind of make that argument both ways. You can make an argument that it's the market share of all the countries or the argument that the Saudis just have or had so much market share that they could do things unilaterally, and OPEC is just a convenient political front for the Saudis.
1: So here's here's my take on it. I think that OPEC can be effective when it... Uh, in certain, under certain circumstances. And when there's more of an oil shortage in the world, they have a lot more um, leeway. They have a lot more clout. When there are all sorts of other producers in the world who are not members of OPEC and who are not following along, then they have a lot less. Saudi Arabia has a particular advantage over every other uh, OPEC country out there. And that is the fact that it maintains spare capacity. And this is spare capacity by, it's actually required. The National Oil Company of Saudi Arabia, Aramco, is required by Saudi law or Saudi decree of the king. Uh, you know, let's let, let's be real here, okay? When we're talking about laws, we're actually talking about royal decrees. But um, they're required to maintain a certain amount of spare capacity. They're required to be able to get up to produce 12 million barrels per day, um, possibly some people think it's actually more, could be 12.3. Um, they need to be able to get up to that level within a certain number of months of it being ordered and maintain that level of production. And they consider that um, a national security prerogative for for Saudi Arabia. And and we actually learned that um, because of the Aramco IPO, they made certain um, things public in their prospectus, and that was one of the things that, that we learned. And so Saudi Arabia has this ability to essentially increase oil production on demand and that's unique amongst all other OPEC producers. Um, it's even unique, you know, the United States can't do that because every company who's producing oil is producing oil according to, you know, their own business plan and their own business needs. They're not like keeping some of it aside for a rainy day or in case the government's like, oh, would you please increase production now? You know, that's, that's not part of the free market system, but Saudi Arabia isn't, isn't part of that. And so they have this spare capacity and that does give them a lot of clout in a situation in which oil is more scarce. The problem becomes when you're dealing with a situation of an oil glut, which is what we've got today. And so they can try to cut production, okay, to um, lift prices, but it doesn't work well when there are so many other oil producers out there who are not part of your group. And so they're finding this is is proving to be very, very difficult. Um, you know, they've, They've gone beyond their traditional OPEC uh, cartel And they have um, invited Russia and a bunch of other countries, including Mexico, and and there are other countries involved now in this larger OPEC Plus group who have agreed to curb their production along with OPEC because they see some sort of, of common benefit. But they haven't been able to effectively raise prices nearly as much as I think they would have hoped. They don't really like to talk about prices in OPEC. They just talk about um you know five year inventory averages and all sorts of other numbers that make everyone confused but really we all know they had like higher oil prices and they're not very effective at, at doing this and it's because there are so many other producers out there but Saudi Arabia always does have that spare capacity that nobody else has and so in the event of a, a situation where markets are tighter they will always be able to either cut or increase to uh, and to use that power
2: so opec and saudi arabia certainly get outsized attention in this conversation but i want to ask about central asia Uh, russia and china are deeply engaged in that area it's energy rich Um, china spent a lot of time uh, in the aughts in particular building pipelines through kazakhstan i think kazakhstan now accounts for like 45 percent of china's gas imports What to talk about the importance of this region for global energy, market?
1: Yeah, so so, um, this is a really important area and the China-Russia connection should not be understated. Um, China and uh, Russia recently opened a new pipeline to China. By new, I mean, I think it's been going for like two years now, so it's not that new, but a new oil pipeline. And this is a really significant issue. And I think we're going to really see this um, be scrutinized, in fact, in uh, the coming weeks and months as we look at the oil market, because um, this enables Russia to send a lot of oil directly to China. Um, So China's primary um, sources of, of oil are Saudi Arabia and Russia. And for a while, they were kind of alternating who was sending more to China. And then the Saudis kind of, took a leap ahead. But Russia is still an extremely important source of oil for China. And that pipeline is a very important component because pipelines, you'd think they could just, oh, let's just shut it off and, and you know, and turn it on when we need it again. It doesn't really work like that when it comes to pipelines. And uh, particularly when they're going through areas that are very cold because you have to keep them warm. You have to keep the oil from running through them to keep them warm so they don't, they don't freeze. So, China right now is looking at a situation where it may, um, it's about, we, we think, probably about 30% of its oil demand may be down due to um, uh, economic uh, slowdown from this coronavirus. And they have said to the Saudis, uh, we'd like to cut about th- it's almost 30% of our normal orders for the month of March. And um, the issue is, are they going to do the same to Russia, and can they because of this pipeline, or do they have to keep receiving that Russian oil, which could mean that out of this whole situation that Russia really comes out on top if they're the only ones who uh, keep sending oil to to China. So it's a very interesting uh, situation here that uh, Russia seems to have really played its cards very well Uh in its relationship with with China um, and its relationship with OPEC and Saudi Arabia being able to kind of take a step back. We saw Putin um, uh, last week, I think, saying, uh, you know, well, we're, we're happy with uh, current oil prices. It's sufficient for our budget. Now, whether or not that's true, that may not be even true. We don't know. But the point was that Putin was saying this as a way of saying, we, we don't need to cut oil prices. We're not desperate. You're the ones who are desperate. We're not desperate. and um and they may very well come out on top of this whole situation. And uh, the situation with Central Asia is also very, very interesting because I know uh, Azerbaijan has joined this OPEC plus group, and they're very um kind of pro the group and and being a part of it and have actually taken a slightly more active role. In fact, one of the meetings was held in Azerbaijan, uh, which is very interesting because uh, it's not normally a place where you hold, um, you know, international cartel meetings, but they all just... the Eurovision Song Contest, right? <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of the... So I I actually didn't, didn't go to that, but a bunch of journalists went and they were very excited because um, you can go in Azerbaijan to actually see these areas where basically like natural gas just like comes. Out of the ground and is perpetually on fire, um, and and so they all like took a they took a, an oil field trip because because that's what oil oil people are like they like to go on uh, field trips to see uh, oil, uh, oil on fire exactly <laughs> so um, but it is I think going to be an increasingly important region because um, natural gas is displacing coal I mean that's it's it displaced a lot of coal in the United States uh, and in other places and that i think is going to be happening in china people realize like not only is coal bad in terms of the carbon that it emits but it's also really bad for air quality and china needs to improve its air quality and so they're going to need more and more natural gas now what's interesting is that the phase 1 trade deal requires them to purchase a certain amount of energy products from the united states now just as energy products so that can be anything Energy related could be oil, it could be gas, it could be gasoline, it could be coal. It could be any, any of this stuff. But a lot of people believe that they they need more natural gas. They can take LNG. The U.S. you know has been really looking to get these long-term contracts to send more LNG. LNG ports are, are expensive to build, and it's really hard to get the financing. That's liquefied natural
2: yes. gas for our listeners. Oh, yes,
1: yes. Sorry about that. Yeah, so LNG, we're talking about liquefying natural gas. That's the best way to transport it overseas. Um, you know, the best way to transport natural gas is by pipeline. Best way to transport oil is by pipeline. Um, you really don't want to put it in a car or in a truck or on a train, which is what they do in Canada. You you do not want to do that. That is not safe. But the other way to transport natural gas is to liquefy it, and then you stick it in these ships, special ships, and then you ship it to somewhere else, and then it goes through a regasification port. And so a lot of um, – this is a very important um, issue for – liquefaction plants, particularly on the Gulf Coast, because to get financing to build more of these plants, they need to show these long-term contracts. And so if they can get these long-term contracts with China, then it's a very significant uh, economic boost for them.
0: Yeah. And politically speaking, it's kind of fascinating because I think there's been a lot of talk here in Washington about, you know, well, now that we can liquefy natural gas and we were producing so much, we can ship overseas. Well, we can use it to break Russia's stranglehold on Eastern European energy. Um, But most of those countries haven't actually created the ports that they need in order to import it. So, you know, manufacturers
1: are looking to China. They're not looking to Europe. Yeah and 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 I've I've written about that quite a bit actually I do think that that is a significant um foreign policy tool that really um you know should be should be considered is that um Ru- Russia really does have a stranglehold on European um natural on European natural gas sources but the United States can combat that by working with Europe to you know, bring more of our liquefied natural gas there. The issues are first of all, that it is more expensive. But one one of the the important principles of of energy security is diversification. And so even if it's cheaper to get gas from Russia, that's not you're you've basically put all your eggs in one basket and you need a diverse source of energy. And so natural gas from the United States can help that you know it's not a, such an easy process and right now we're flaring immense amount of natural gas that we could be liquefying and sending you know to all sorts of other places flaring is effectively being wasting yeah, yeah. flaring it is essentially you're burning it at the source and and it's it's not just wasteful but it also emits a lot of harmful chemical uh, harmful gases into the atmosphere so saudi arabia used to flare a lot of natural gas and then they built something because when you produce oil natural gas is a byproduct and um, then they built actually something called their master gas system which basically captures most of a lot of that natural gas and feeds it into their power plants so um, which is a really really good um, thing for them because they used to burn direct they used to burn crude oil for electricity which is not just very bad for the environment, but very bad financially because they could make a lot more money selling that oil abroad. now they they use their own natural gas for uh, a good uh, oh, I think over two-thirds now of their electricity comes from from this natural gas. But the United States really we have so much natural gas here, um, but you really do need to build out the infrastructure. so they need in Europe they need to have regasification ports and then they also need to have the infrastructure to send that natural gas, into their their power plants. And I know that there was some work being done, uh, you know, with Poland and with Ukraine, but there is still a lot more work that needs to be done on this.
0: And again, this kind of comes back to one of the, the, the big... Political issues related to this is that just authoritarian states and states that aren't market economies, they do a lot better at sort of centralizing decision making about production and about you know about what they're going to build and what needs financed for you know long term down the road needs, um, and you know we're we're not nearly so good at that. And I'm not saying I would give up the market economy to do that, but it's we're just not quite as good at that.
1: Well, I, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know. I- I wouldn't um, downplay the the importance of the market economy because um, while centralized planning for infrastructure and things like that can have some advantages, it also doesn't because they make decisions that can turn out to be the wrong ones and it's not very flexible, whereas um, the U.S., energy industry has proved to be incredibly flexible precisely because of these market forces that, um, so, you know, like what we were seeing back during in, in 2015, 2016 during this downturn was we were seeing companies were, you know, being very flexible in terms of the oil that they were producing versus not producing. So they shifted a lot of production to the much more um, effective and and less costly wells in different, different fracking areas. And then, you know, we saw them, you know, they renegotiate their contracts so that they are paying less for labor. And we're seeing that happening now that oil prices have dropped again. We're seeing companies, they're going to their suppliers and to their vendors and saying, hey, oil prices are lower we need to renegotiate this contract. And that's not the kind of thing that you can necessarily have when you're talking about a big kind of state-run authoritarian behemoth. And so... um you know, I do think that we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, count it count it out that that these kinds of projects aren't going to get done or this infrastructure isn't going to get built. We have brought online a lot of pipelines in the United States that have really been very helpful in transporting um, our oil and our gas from these um, oil producing regions to the Gulf. You know, we can now export a lot more oil than we could, and um, you know, it's, it doesn't nothing gets done immediately, but it does get done.
2: That's kind of interesting because uh, if you think about it, actually geopolitics is an obstacle when you think about uh, global energy markets. So if you imagine some hypothetical world where petrostates aren't a thing and it's really just market economies dealing with, with energy, would it be more flexible, more efficient, or or would we face other problems?
1: Well, I think it would definitely be more flexible and more efficient. Um, you know, one of the important steps that the United States took was in ending the oil export ban. And a lot of people thought that this was going to be bad for our own energy security, but it's actually helped us integrate into the market because, like I said, we're producing a lot of light oil, but we need heavy oil. Well, now that we can put our oil out there on the market— the market will find a more efficient way to get the oil that people need to the right source, and we, there are oil traders out there who are buying and selling cargos of oil all the time. And there are some, you know, issues that happen. You get a lot of speculation. You get a lot of um, volatility in markets, particularly in prices of oil, uh, and and so you do get, get speculation. And, and OPEC hates that. Um, no one no one would rail against speculators more than the Saudi oil ministers, but that's that's life, and um, I do think that um, it is, the market today is a lot more flexible and a lot more efficient than it used to be when you had just a few, you know, big producers out there. Um, you know, you can see why you know certain big oil producers who were used to. Um, Things kind of being the same uh, are not particularly happy with that now. But uh, one of the things, at least that I've observed, and and I study this also as a historian, is that it changes. And today, the U.S. is a big producer. You know, in in the eighties and nineties. The North Sea was the big one. Alaska was a huge component. You know, things are going to change. We could see Brazil emerge as a major player. Um, Brazil is actually considering joining OPEC, which I think would be a very interesting move. I'm not sure that um, it would actually come through for Brazil. But, you know, there are are a lot of uh, the market is going to change. It's not going to stay the way it is. You know, the way the market is today is not going to be what we're seeing in 10 years and 20 years. It may not even be this way in five years. And that's also one of the dangers of looking at forecasts. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen in the future. The truth is that nobody knows. And, and I'll, I'm going to say, um, so Ali al-Naimi, the, the, the um, old Saudi oil minister, used to say, people would say, you know, what's the price of oil going to be? And he'd say, he, he used to give one of two responses. One was that uh, only God knows what the price of oil is. And and the other one was, well, if I knew I'd be in Vegas.
2: So despite that disclaimer, I do kind of want to ask you about the future. Uh, I mean, climate change is obviously a major global problem that people want to find ways to deal with. It seems hard if the global economy is sustained by carbon emissions. Is there anything on the horizon that would be more efficient and uh, cheaper Uh, to replace uh, these bad gases getting into the air?
1: Well, a lot of people, I think, focus on things that they can do and see. And for a lot of people, that has to do with the cars that they drive or the products that they buy and use. But uh, most of the... Emissions that are coming out there are not coming from things that we in America see and touch and do. They're coming from factories in China and factories in India, and they're the biggest sources of, uh, you know, of pollution. And a lot of that comes from burning coal. And um, as particularly for India and China, they they have coal deposits, and so they want to use those. So I would say that the probably the most important thing that we could do to reduce the amount of carbon we're emitting is to Help those countries switch from coal to natural gas. Natural gas is not a perfect fuel. It's not, a, you know, it's not a a renewable fuel. It's not a green fuel, but it is a lot better than coal. And if if you can promote that then I think we'll do a lot more in terms of the world and the globe than, you know, um, buying an electric vehicle and then buying a Tesla and driving it to and from work in the supermarket every day. That may make people feel good and feeling good. I don't want to put down feeling good, but in the aggregate, you're really not doing all that much, particularly if you're charging your car from, you know, an electrical port that's getting its energy from a coal burning plant or even a natural gas burning plant. If you're getting it from a nuclear plant, then then you're probably, you're, 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 impact is is a lot less but um, the
2: climate doesn't care about your feelings is a good bumper sticker. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the climate <laughs> doesn't care about your feelings. It's true. Um yeah, you, know, you may care about your feelings, which is fine and and you know, you can reduce the amount of plastic that you use. You know, that has other effects other than just you you're not really reducing the amount of of plastic that's being produced. In fact, um most of the um you know, car, most of the fossil fuels are actually being used to produce things like coatings and and that that you know coat your windows and and things like that are not actually being pro- used to produce like plastic straws um but reducing the amount of plastic does help the environment in other ways because it does pollute and it's bad for for animals and it's bad for our uh you know ecosystem so so there's that issue but if you're really focused on on carbon emissions, Um, the biggest polluters are factories. And and so switching the source that these um, factories are using for their electricity will go far. One of the interesting things that I think is actually, um, one of the more interesting things on the horizons are these small modular nuclear Plants, which are um, basically, instead of building a giant nuclear power plant to power a grid, their factories are basically having their own like mini nuclear reactors. And to me, um, you know, it's it's not, the technology is not quite there, but I do think it's closer than um, wind and solar. And we do hear a lot about the major advances and the reductions in costs of wind and solar, and that's great, but there are still some serious, serious limitations that I think A lot of people are are glossing over because they're just looking at the rate of progress as opposed to what these technologies are actually useful for today.
0: Well I think we could probably do an entire episode on that and I'm sorry we don't have the time for it but before we before we wrap up here I do want to talk very briefly about what's going on in the oil market right now um because with the the rise of the coronavirus um with China basically shutting everything down literally everything people quarantined in their houses factories shut down for several weeks at a time um it's
1: causing ripples big ripples in the oil market yeah one of the things you have to understand is where the oil market was before we went into this. And that was that we were kind of looking at this precipice of um, of a recession, not really in a recession, but at a precipice of it. And everyone was very, very concerned about demand. And essentially, um, most people believed that oil demand was not really going to grow in 2020, maybe a little bit, maybe a million barrels a day, maybe a million and a half but oil demand was not really gonna grow at all. So that's the situation that we started in going into 2020 was this situation where oil demand for the world is about hundred million barrels a day. And we're looking at a situation where that's not gonna grow, but production was gonna grow. And um, the the trade war with China was a huge component of these fears over demand, but there were other reasons as well. Europe was was also a a component. So we were already in a situation where everyone was hyper-concerned about demand, and that was driving the market. On top of that, then you suddenly throw in the coronavirus and a situation where we know there's going to be some demand destruction in China, but we're not sure quite how much. And suddenly fear took over and we saw oil prices drop like a stone. And so we're now in a situation where instead of hoping to keep Brent, which is the international benchmark for oil, at you know, $60 a barrel. We're hoping to keep it above 50. And that's a big shift. And that's gonna mean a lot for oil producers, and of which the US is one. And so that's why in the United States, we need to be concerned. You know, normally you look low gas prices, yes, everyone's excited. Low gas prices going to election. That's generally good for the people in power. But we're a big oil producer today. And so We could see, in fact, I would not be surprised if this continues, if we see uh, economic problems hitting oil producing regions, uh, problems in Texas. I mean, this is a significant issue. We need to look at this from the perspective now of not just being an oil consumer, but also an oil producer and what low oil prices can do to this industry, which has become a big component of our economy.
0: And a major employer and a major source of tax revenues as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's great. I think that's a great place to wrap up. That's all we have time for. Um, but thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, to everyone for listening. Thank you, Ellen, for joining us. It was really interesting. Um, and if you'd like to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at PowerProblems. If you want to hear more about energy security and uh, how it affects U.S. military presence in the Middle East, try going to our website and listening to our event from last week uh, on U.S. energy uh, security in the Middle East. And if you like the show, please do leave us a good review on iTunes, or wherever else you find your podcasts.